Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, and now we continue our 30 Issues election series. This week, Issue 7, with the New Jersey primary coming up, our 21st century infrastructure. Donald Trump, a builder by trade, has made one piece of infrastructure and how to fund it a centerpiece of his campaign. I will build a wall. Remember this. The wall will be paid for by Mexico. But what about infrastructure within the four walls of the United States? Crumbling roads and bridges, New York and New Jersey mass transit infrastructure, like another tunnel between the two, resilient infrastructure to minimize damage from another Sandy, green infrastructure to set up our energy future, and digital infrastructure that supports almost everything. Let's listen to some history. Before the industrial era in agrarian America, infrastructure was much more low-tech. But in the 1800s, the dawn of the machine age, came the possibility of and the need for a modern economy infrastructure. The word is believed to have only come into use in the 1880s or so in English and in French, deriving from the French meaning the structure below. Arguably, the first big American infrastructure project was the construction of the railroads. According to the website AmericanRails.com, Railroad history in America has its earliest beginnings dating back to 1815, and it happens to start in New Jersey when Colonel John Stevens gained the first railroad charter in North America to build the New Jersey Railroad Company. Colonel Stevens also tested the first steam locomotive in the country in 1826 when he showcased his steam wagon design, basically a steam-powered horse carriage, on a small circular track he had built on his estate in Hoboken. By 1869, a milestone in U.S. history, the first transcontinental railroad was completed when it reached California. A WGBH American Experience public television documentary called Transcontinental Railroad describes how it was no walk in the park to build. For example, Speed was never easy for the Central Pacific. Everything from locomotives to rails to spikes still had to be built at ironworks in the east and then sailed around the tip of South America to the San Francisco docks, loaded onto steamboats, and shipped up the Sacramento River. Schedules rarely held. Much-needed spikes, rails, and rail chairs sat under becalmed sails. A locomotive sank in the Hudson River, parts of another in San Francisco Bay. Infrastructure and labor have always been connected in this country. In the case of the Transcontinental Railroad, there wasn't enough labor to go around for the completion of the project in the 1860s, so thousands of workers were brought in from China, mostly from Guangdong province, where there was a lot of poverty, and it was near Hong Kong for an easy point of departure. But by the time of the Great Depression in the 1930s, infrastructure building became associated with putting unemployed Americans back to work. Here is President Franklin Roosevelt introducing the WPA, or Works Progress Administration, later known as the Works Project Administration, projects, which launched in 1935. It was a jobs program looking for needed tasks. For this work relief program, first, the projects should be useful. Secondly, the project should be of a nature that a considerable proportion of the money spent 
We'll go into wages for labor. Third, projects that promise ultimate return to the federal treasury of a considerable proportion of the costs will be sought as far as possible. Fourth, funds allotted for each project should be actually and promptly spent and not held over until later years for the spending. Fifth, in all cases, projects must be of a character to give employment to those on the relief rolls first. And finally, projects will be allocated to the localities or to the relief areas in relation to the number of workers on the relief rolls in those areas. President Franklin Roosevelt in 1935. Millions of Americans worked on WPA projects for billions of federal tax dollars. The legacy is parks, bridges, schools, and more all over the country. As we'll hear, President Obama tried to draw on this history during the Great Recession. In the 1950s, though, the big infrastructure project was the interstate highway system. As Americans were becoming car owners en masse, the suburbs were developing around cities, and truck transportation of goods was becoming cheaper and more flexible than freight trains in many cases. Like the railroads a century earlier, it was a centralized national effort. And one of the things that President Dwight Eisenhower will always be remembered for, as in this declaration in his 1955 State of the Union address. A modern highway system is essential to meet the needs of our growing population, our expanding economy, and our national security. We are accelerating our highway improvement program under existing state and federal laws and authorizations. But this effort will not, in itself, assure our people of an adequate system. This problem has been carefully considered by the Conference of State Governors and by a special advisory committee on a national highway program composed of leading private citizens. I have received the recommendations of the Governor's Conference and will shortly receive the views of the special uh, committee. Aided by their findings, I plan to submit on January 27th recommendations which will meet our most pressing national highway needs. President Eisenhower in 1955. Cities and metropolitan areas needed their own public works infrastructures, too. New York City official Robert Moses was the infrastructure visionary who pushed construction of local roads, bridges, housing complexes, and more for decades in the mid-20th century. Here is Robert Moses pushing for more accommodation of our hunger to be a car culture in a 1953 television interview. No, we're way behind. <clears throat> We've been falling behind steadily for years, and uh, now the <clears throat> situation is more or less desperate. <clears throat> the fact is that unless we begin to, uh, unless we launch a, a new program, a much larger program, we're going to face a situation where we can't accommodate the output of cars. Stoppage of, uh, almost complete stoppage of road building during the Second World War, but it's been a steady, uh, we've been falling behind steadily. Robert Moses in 1953. Infrastructure broke out as a debated presidential politics in 1960. Here is, in a way, a very modern exchange in one of the John F. Kennedy-Richard Nixon televised debates over the role of government versus the role of the private sector in creating the infrastructure that the country was becoming proud of. Here's two minutes of that debate. Nixon speaks first. Too often in appraising whether we are moving ahead or not, we think only of what the federal government is doing. 
Now, that isn't the test of whether America moves. The test of whether America moves is whether the federal government, plus the state government, plus the local government, plus the biggest segment of all, individual enterprise, moves. We have, for example, a gross national product of approximately $500 billion. Roughly $100 billion to $100.25 billion of that is the result of government activity. $400 billion, approximately, is a result of what individuals do. Now, the reason the Eisenhower administration has moved, the reason that we've had the funds, for example, locally, to build the schools and the hospitals and the highways, to make the progress that we have, is because this administration has encouraged individual enterprise. And it has resulted in the greatest expansion of the private sector of the economy that has ever been witnessed in an eight-year period. And that is growth. That is the growth that we are looking for. It is the growth that this administration has supported and that its policies have stimulated. Senator Kennedy? Well, I must say, I think the reason that the schools have been constructed is because the local school districts were willing to increase the property taxes to a tremendously high figure. In my opinion, almost the point of diminishing returns in order to sustain these schools. Secondly, I think we have a richer country. And I think we have a powerful country. I think what we have to do, however, is have the president and the leadership set before our country exactly what we must do in the next decade if we're going to maintain our security in education, in economic growth, in development of natural resources. The Soviet Union is making great gains. It isn't enough to compare what might have been done eight years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. I want to compare what we're doing with what our adversaries are doing so that by the year 1970, the United States is ahead in education, in health, in building, in homes, in economic strength. I think that's the big assignment, the big task, the big function of the federal government. Kennedy and Nixon in 1960. Infrastructure was also a topic in the 1992 presidential debate between Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and Ross Perot. Here are Bush and Clinton seeming to compete for whose infrastructure vision was aimed more effectively at the future. The economy was in a downturn then, and notice when Bill Clinton speaks how, like FDR before him, he links a progressive infrastructure vision with putting people back to work. First Bush. We passed this year the most farthest-looking uh, transportation bill in the history of this country since Eisenhower started the interstate highways. $150 billion for improving the infrastructure. That happened when I was president. My plan would dedicate $20 billion a year in each of the next four years for investments in new transportation, communications, environmental cleanups, and new technologies for the 21st century. And we would target it especially in areas that have been either depressed or which have lost a lot of defense-related jobs. Clinton and Bush in 1992. Now, when President Obama was elected during the depths of a financial crisis and massive layoffs crisis in 2008, one of his first big acts in office was to propose his nearly trillion-dollar stimulus bill. The idea was based partly on FDR's actions during the Great Depression, including the Works Progress Administration. And it was based on Keynesian economics, the idea that government spending on the private sector economy would help stimulate it back to recovery and not let it crash into a deeper spiral of deflation, business losses, and layoffs. And he linked the jobs programs to the need and opportunity to modernize our infrastructure. Now, the last third of the Recovery Act is for investments that are already putting people back to work. There are almost 100 shovel-ready transportation projects already approved in Colorado 
which are beginning to create jobs. Shovel ready. Remember that phrase? President Obama in August 2009. Now, conservatives don't believe in stimulus spending and prefer shrinking government in times of recession to decrease the tax burden on businesses and incentivize growth that way. They also criticize massive government works projects as wasteful and inefficient. And in this exchange with a journalist in 2012, President Obama admitted not as many, quote, shovel-ready jobs were created per dollar as he had hoped. I'm sure that when you implemented the Recovery Act, your staff briefed you on many of the challenges of the permitting process and the impact on putting Americans back to work. And that's, that's exactly what we see in American businesses. Well. Shovel-ready was not as uh, <laughs> shovel-ready as we expected. The president continued through his ter- two terms, however, to propose more infrastructure-slash-job creation programs, but the Republican Congress rejected them. And who could forget this infrastructure moment from the Obama versus Romney campaign in 2012? The president got in political hot soup, remember, for defending the work of government by telling entrepreneurs about their businesses, quote, you didn't build that. Someone else made that happen. Business people were offended. Romney used it before live audiences like this. But let me ask you this. Did you build your business? If you did, raise your hand. Take that, Mr. President. This is what's happening in this country. These people are entrepreneurs. Obama clearly did not put it well. What he meant to say was that people don't build their businesses in a vacuum. And his context was infrastructure. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Roads and bridges. As the 2016 campaign kicks into even higher gear, the politics of public works infrastructure today live at a complicated crossroads. It's the intersection of a great need to repair neglected and crumbling old things and create new things for the changing global economy, which combine with the desire to create well-paying construction and other jobs, but which collide with a finite ability to tax and spend for all the things the public wants, creating tough choices. Here's the president just a few weeks ago commenting on the recent problems in the Washington, D.C. subway system. It is just one more example of the underinvestments that have been made. Look, the D.C. metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. But over time, we underinvested in maintenance and repair Underinvestment coming home to roost. But where will the money come from? Here in New Jersey, one of Governor Christie's signature and most controversial acts was saying no to federal infrastructure funding for the so-called ARC Tunnel to Manhattan because New Jersey's share of the tab was too daunting. The ARC Tunnel will cost no less than $11 billion and could exceed $14 billion. Uh, In light of that information... The executive committee has made a recommendation to me uh, that the project be terminated and that the staff begin uh, an expeditious and uh, orderly wind down of the project. And today I have accepted that recommendation. Bottom line is this. uh, New Jersey has gone for too long and for too many decades ordering things that they can't pay for. Now, of course, Christie is the transition chief for Donald Trump, a job that only really exists if Trump is elected president. We can only wonder so far what kinds of relevant cabinet members and how high a priority for infrastructure Christie might recommend. 
And that's our brief political history of infrastructure in sound for this week's installment of our 30 Issues election series. Let's talk about it for a few minutes with Brian Palash, Managing Director of Government Relations and Infrastructure Initiatives at the American Society of Civil Engineers in Washington. He was previously Director of Government Relations for the American Subcontractors Association. And if these sound like lobbying jobs... Yes. In fact, another of his previous jobs was president of the American League of Lobbyists. So, Brian, thanks a lot for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you very much for having me. Thinking about how the history we just heard connects with your work, how much did FDR set the standard that you measure success by to this day for matching the demand for, you know, need for public infrastructure with the need for full employment? Well, I mean, I think I think that the standard that was laid out was that the jobs that are created through infrastructure um, are good-paying jobs and long-standing jobs, um, and I think that that is a that is a good standard, and that still reigns true to rings true today, and is something that we still see whether those jobs are with engineering firms or construction firms, um, and frankly, the ripple effect is much broader than that. Whether it's the folks that are, are building the construction equipment, um, and, and it's just it, it ripples throughout the economy, and frankly, without that in infrastructure, we wouldn't have the economy that we have today. Do you think infrastructure programs and job creation programs have become too intertwined? We need to assess the need for each thing separately, don't we? Well, that, that's probably true. I think that that's a true statement, and I think the the way we've started to look at it is wh- how the infrastructure actually affects our economy and the way we do business. Not so much in the in the narrow focus of of how it creates jobs in that limited sector, but how, in fact, what we're doing with the way we invest in our nation's infrastructure or our local infrastructure is actually helping to grow the economy. You represent civil engineers in Washington. How is that different as an interest group from contractors or subcontractors or the construction industry in general, or is it? Um, I, I think it's a little bit related. Um, we're, we're a little bit of a different organization. We are we are a pretty old organization. We started in in New York City, in fact, in the 1850s, um, and are an individual member organization. So our members are actually folks. Um, it's not engineering firms. It's the actual engineers that join. We have lots of them in New York City. Maybe some are listening to the program today. Um, but in terms of our interest, I think we you know we we feel like we're speaking as the voice, um, the, the the knowledgeable voice on what the what the current status is of our infrastructure. Our folks do, in fact, know the best. They're the ones that inspect the dams. They inspect bridges. Um, they're responsible for, for the infrastructure. To give us a snapshot of how this plays out politically, what do you see as your main lobbying goals for this year? Well, I, I would say one thing that we were able to do last year was we were able to pass for the first time in 10 years a long-term surface transportation bill, which is a piece of legislation that's called the FAST Act, and it actually created a it, – it, it, it will go for five years, uh, which is the longest it's been in, in 10 years, as I said, uh, was a series of, of, of one- and two- and three-year bills. But this five-year bill creates a $300 billion program to help states and local governments rebuild their surface transportation infrastructure, not only roads and bridges, but also transit systems. So that was a a key accomplishment. And in the coming year, uh, the Senate is working hard and the House and Senate are working hard on two pieces of legislation. One is the Water Resources Bill, which actually deals with ports and inland waterways, dams and levees, and it's something where where it authorizes programs and projects for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The other piece of legislation important to, to most folks, especially as we enter the summer 
travel season is FAA reauthorization, so a piece of legislation to actually reauthorize the work that the FAA does, not only the air traffic control uh, type activities, but also the landside improvements, things that we need to make our airports uh, move more smoothly for those of us who are trying to uh, get to the plane, if you will. Do you think there is more resistance to infrastructure spending today than in the past? Or how much is the difference between, say, the Eisenhower years and today a matter of having a clearly defined national mission? Was the country in near unanimous agreement that we needed a national highway system in the 1950s? And today, for example, the the list of priorities that you just mentioned, uh, they seem small or piecemeal or we can't agree so much on whether there's such a unifying mission. Well, I, I think a unifying mission helps, and I and I think you know we we've tried to focus on the notion that the unifying mission is that the infrastructure is the backbone of our economy, and if we want that 21st econ- 21st century economy, we need a 21st century infrastructure, and we have we have not kept pace. You know, we do a report card for America's infrastructure. I, I know you know about that. It comes out every four years. Our next one comes out next March in 2017, and and I think what we're going to find is uh, you know we're, we're just not keeping pace with that level of investment that we need, uh, and 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 as a result, that that lack of investment is actually holding back the economy. We released a few weeks ago uh, an economic study that shows that that the cost to our gov- our, our GDP, our gross domestic product, will be about close to four trillion dollars by 2025 if we don't close that infrastructure investment gap. So it is a little bit about that that high level vision, if you will, but it's also about the leadership at the Congress congressional level, its leadership at the state level, uh, uh, whether it's governors and, and mayors um, standing up and saying we really need to invest in the infrastructure for, for our local economy and our national economy. You talk about leadership at the congressional level. After the stimulus bill of '09, and once Republicans took control of Congress in 2010, how much did infrastructure spending in the way you would define it usually, uh, you know, in the way you, you would usually define it, grind to a halt? I'm not sure that it ground to a halt. I think the problem is uh, it, it just didn't grow. I mean, we've, we've really been facing this infrastructure deficit for the for as long as we've done the report card. Our first report card that we released was in 1998, and we just continue to see the gap between what we what we need to be spending and what we are spending continue to grow. Um, in, in the most recent, as I was saying in this in the, in the economic study that we did, what we found is that gap has grown to about 1.4 trillion dollars over the next 10 years, um, and, and, and that's, a, that's a cost that just, you know, we're, we're, we're continuing to pay uh, a negative cost, if you will, a cost to all of us as, as whether we're consumers of goods, whether we're people that use the roads and the transit systems uh, for, for the lack of, of a good working infrastructure. I'm curious, are you lobbying for the southern border wall because it would be a good employment vehicle for civil engineers? Um, the ASCE does not lobby for particular projects, so the, so so it, so we do not have a position nor a nor a statement on that. Do you see anything as top infrastructure challenges or tough choices for the next president in the context of the presidential election? Well, 
I, I think there's a couple of things, and I think both both the, the the remaining three candidates for president have all talked about infrastructure to to varying degrees, and that's heartening. I think that they understand that infrastructure is uh, uh, part of part of should be part of the discussion and the debate as we as we enter into this, or as we're in the middle, I guess now of this election season. Um, probably the largest looming issue that they will have. I, I talked earlier about the five-year transportation bill. When that five-year transportation bill runs out, uh, there will be a, a, another gap in, in, in the money that comes into the highway trust fund. And how we solve that highway trust fund gap and how we invest for the future is something that this next president's going to have to deal with, um, and, and regardless of the party. And, and so they're really going to need to focus on that. And the time to start focusing on that really is, is now. And the, the time to start having those conversations is now. Uh, and, and looking at ways in which we can address those uh, address that problem of, of the of the gap between what we need to be spending um, and what the Congress has continued to authorize that we spend um, and 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 the amount of money that's coming into the Federal Highway Trust Fund. Brian Palish, Managing Director of Government Relations and Infrastructure Initiatives at the American Society of Civil Engineers in Washington. Thank you very very much. Thank you. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. Now we continue our 30 Issues election series. It's issue eight this week, infrastructure as an issue in the general election and the New Jersey primary. Infrastructure is such a big issue in New Jersey, post-Sandy recovery and resiliency, infrastructure, the dwindling transportation trust fund at the state level, and much more. We remember that Governor Christie in his first term stopped an NJ transit tunnel to Manhattan, the one known as the Arc Tunnel, from being completed because of fear of cost overruns and New Jersey saddled with too much of the share of the cost relative to New York or the federal government. But that project has been replaced by a twice as expensive tunnel idea called the Gateway Project that observers consider probably the most important infrastructure project in the United States right now. This time, it involves NJ Transit and Amtrak, with the states of New York and New Jersey each contributing a quarter of the cost and Washington contributing half. Here is Governor Cuomo describing the $20 billion gateway project. These tunnels were very serious because uh, all the trains run through them between New York and New Jersey. It's Amtrak for the whole Northeast run through these tunnels. And uh, they're old, and they took a terrible beating during Hurricane Sandy. The federal government, Department of Transportation, uh, talked a long time about how important the tunnels were. But it's a $20 billion project, and we needed the funding. Uh, And there was no funding coming. Governor Christie and I put together a proposal where we said we would pay half as a way to provoke the conversation. And uh, thanks to our representatives in Congress, the federal government now said that they're going to match the half. And I congratulate Senator Schumer uh, for taking the lead on our side and for actually getting the federal government to deliver finally. So uh, it's going to happen. Uh, We uh, have to put the funding together, but the funding has been committed. And when you put these tunnels together with everything else we're doing, Marsha, you're seeing a whole reconstruction of the fundamental infrastructure of New York. The MTA, we're doing new subways, we're doing new buses, 
2nd uh, Avenue Subway, Cross Hudson Tunnels, LaGuardia, Tappan Zee. That is the infrastructure of New York. And that's government's responsibility. It was stalled for a long, long time, and now it's happening. Governor Cuomo at the biggest party ever given, apparently. But let's talk about Gateway and LaGuardia Airport, as we just heard the development in that reconstruction and other infrastructure issues this election year with A.D. Tomer, a Brookings Institution fellow and a member of the Metropolitan Infrastructure Initiative. Hi, A.D., welcome to WNYC. Hi, thanks for having me, Brian. To start on the Gateway Project, did Christie's refusal to build the Arc Tunnel wind up leading to something better and a fairer deal to New Jersey in the bargain? There's certainly a lot to like about the Gateway Project. I mean, you know, it's not lost on on listeners of your program how important that access to, uh, well, the region's core, to, to play a little bit of pun on the old tunnel project. Um, and it's, it's so important for the entire Northeast Corridor and really the global economy. I mean, so much funnels through uh, New York that having making sure there's that access to it um, is vital, not just for Manhattan's economy, but really for those bedroom communities in New Jersey and New York and even out to Connecticut and Pennsylvania. And of course, the other uh, anchors in Boston and D.C. I think that's part of the reason you saw, um, frankly, in pretty quick t- uh, timelines for D.C., a large chunk of money that's not from conventional sources come together to support a project um, of this scale. So I think it shows that it is of national import. Um, it's really hard to backtrack, you know what I mean, in, in, in terms of your initial question on, on is this better or not. We certainly can like where this is going. Um, and obviously, Sandy, I think really, uh, Superstorm Sandy, really underscored just how vital not only these, um, this infrastructure is, but, but if it goes offline, really the, what can happen uh, to the regional and macro economies if they're shut down. So, so it, we're fortunate that's moving forward, and let's hope it keeps up that momentum. Cuomo in the clip said we still have to put the funding together, even though the funding has been committed. And I don't understand if that means the money is there or the money isn't there. Do you? That's one of the hardest things to tell always in infrastructure. So, um, you know, taking a quick step back, and I think the New Jersey listeners are especially attuned to this right now, is uh, most of our funding, especially for transportation infrastructure of this kind, both nationally and in states, it comes from the gas tax. Um, And if it doesn't, it needs to come from general fund. Um, When it's gas tax money, you know how much is there. Unfortunately, in the case of New Jersey, they're basically fully tapped out on the gas tax. And maybe we'll talk about that at one point. Um, and the federal side, when it comes out of general funds or same for the, the other states, it really is about either you know shifting the deck chairs a little bit relative to other public programs or finding new revenues uh, from new places. So I think it's going to come up to the two governors uh, to, to figure out if they want to shift those deck chairs or find new revenue sources. Um, but chances are, if they're saying this commitment's publicly uh, and so loudly, frankly, that, that they'll find the money uh, in the in the pockets that they have. And to get you quickly on the other issue in the news, though it's not New Jersey infrastructure per se, uh, Governor Cuomo announcing developments in the reconstruction of LaGuardia Airport today, as you just heard in the newscast. And uh, Richard Hake reminded us that Joe Biden had come to LaGuardia and said it was like something he'd see in the third world. How much of that is federal money? So a huge chunk of that is actually really not just local money, but it's actually a combination of what insiders in transportation call public-private partnerships, basically private capital coming off the sidelines, uh, helping to build out uh, that infrastructure. You know, one of the things we always try to remind folks, especially in New York, New Jersey region, um, is that 
that's the number one aviation center, not just for the country, but pretty much the world, competitive with places like London and increasingly other growing markets like Dubai. Um, so much funnels through that market that um, you know rebuilding LaGuardia doesn't just help the regional economy; it really helps the macro one. So um, it's a great project for the for the. Uh, for everyone to really get those benefits um, from what they're going to do there. It's obviously LaGuardia's in great need. Um, I always personally hesitate to say, look, you know, no one goes to an airport for the aesthetics, right? So I understand when, you know, used to live in New York, you know, having a leaky tile in LaGuardia is nothing nice to look at. Uh, but in the end of the day, it's also the closest airport to downtown and to Wall Street and to many other um, places where people live. So it's a very attractive facility. This kind of upgrade is really important to make sure that it maintains that status for decades in the future. Let's go on to the candidates for president. Here is Bernie Sanders on infrastructure and infrastructure jobs. What I have proposed is to expend a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars over a five-year period to make sure that states and cities throughout this country have the resources that they need to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. And by the way, a trillion may seem like a lot of money, but the American Society of Civil Engineers tells us that we need even more, but it would be a good start. And you know what happens when we invest a trillion dollars in rebuilding our roads and bridges and water systems? We're going to create 13 million jobs over a five-year period. And here is Hillary Clinton on Charlie Rose in December. The Republicans don't want to pay for anything. You know, it, it is when I was in the when I was in the Senate, I was on the committee that was responsible for writing the bill, the highway transportation bill. It was hard because we had a lot of back and forth, but we came out with a bill. We got it done. There has not been a bill that has actually come out for years now. And so the Congress is in the middle of arguing about whether or not they can get a highway bill. But they don't want anybody to pay anything for it. And so they don't want to use user fees. They don't want any kind of fee that could be construed as a tax. Okay. Now, at some point... That's how they view fees. At some point, you know, we are crumbling. I mean, every independent assessment says the same thing. We have a failing grade. So we heard Clinton and Sanders there. We'll get to Trump in a minute. Um, but, eighty, the, the thing that Sanders said at the end of the clip, not only a trillion dollars over a five-year period to make sure that states and cities throughout the country have the resources that they need to rebuild their crumbling infrastructure, but also we're going to create 13 million jobs over a five-year period. And when we did an infrastructure, the politics of history, sorry, the the, uh, political history of infrastructure on yesterday's show, we heard from FDR forward that jobs and infrastructure keep being linked politically. Do they belong in the same breath, in your opinion, or should they be seen as separate issues? They're definitely not uh, – it's not an exact correlation in the sense that you spend this much, you're going to get this many jobs. And it's not necessarily the most efficient way to make jobs, but that's in some ways because there's actually a short-sightedness to the kind of jobs we're talking about. So we've been doing some major research here at Brookings for about three years now about what really is an infrastructure job. And there's a lot of focus in – the narrative, obviously, you know, Bush famously said this. This is Bush Sr. Uh, when he was president about this is really a jobs bill, not a highway bill. Um, they were just talking about short-term construction jobs. You know, those represent less than a quarter of infrastructure jobs in the country. Infrastructure actually represents about 10 percent of our workforce already. 
But most of those jobs are actually in operations and governance and design. In other words, basically using that system once it's already built. So it's everything from your freight handlers to your your architects and civil engineers. Uh, So there's an inextricable link there because once the infrastructure exists, people tend to use it. Um, And in terms of it's actually their job to use that system. So it's great for our economy in the long run. It helps connect communities together, whether we're talking about um, broadband infrastructure to water infrastructure to, of course, roads and rails. Um, So it's there's no question that all three candidates, because, I mean, I think um, uh, Donald Trump deserves credit here for for speaking publicly, at least about the need to invest in infrastructure. So we can expect any candidate that comes through the general in November to have some sort of infrastructure agenda that is going to lead to jobs. But it's not just those hard hat jobs when we build stuff. It's actually the long term jobs uh, that are really good paying for a lot of people. Is there any particular difference that you would um, articulate as you know a Brookings infrastructure watcher between Sanders and Clinton. Certainly, the thrust of their remarks were the same. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Brian. The 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 energy is in the same direction. Again, it, Trump is speaking the same way too. So it's we can feel as as the general electorate that we can really see an infrastructure agenda coming. Now, um, Senator Sanders' agenda is obviously it's a much bigger figure, one trillion versus two hundred seventy five billion from Clinton. I know to everyone those are huge numbers, but uh, relative to the need, um, they're within the ballpark. Um, but Senator Sanders is not as clear about where the funding exactly is going to come from that. Uh, Secretary Clinton uh, so far has talked about bringing back offshore profits and, and using that method, something that, again, the uh, the current presidential team has been talking about for quite a few years, too. Um, you know, the... The big thing to keep in mind here for, I think, the listeners and, again, in the case of New Jersey, next week they're voters and then everyone's going to be voting in November is that as much as the presidents can set the tone here, so much of infrastructure spending at the federal level really comes out of decisions made in Congress. Uh, so we can expect the president, whoever comes out, uh, to set that agenda to be hopefully really clear about what they want to invest in. And there's a lot of different categories where we have need. Um, but it's really going to come up to Congress uh, to move that ball forward from where we are right now. And that's what Clinton said at the beginning of her clip. The Republicans don't want to pay for anything. When I was in the Senate, I was on the committee that was responsible for writing the highway transportation bill. It was hard because we had a lot of back and forth, but we came out with a bill. And her point is now they're not. Now, there's certainly been news over the course of uh, the Obama administration that he proposes infrastructure, both for infrastructure's sake and for employment's sake, and the Republicans turn it down. Uh, But I see you wrote a piece earlier in the year, a real win for metropolitan areas in 2017 transportation budget. So what do you think the legacy of um, this divided government under Obama and Republican Congress is on infrastructure? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, first to give Congress credit, especially if you had someone on talking about basically any other major policy area, right? They they could really point to congressional gridlock, um, uh, effectively leading to no results. You know, infrastructure is not that. We've passed quite a few bills under this administration, and in that sense, they deserve credit. Um, just this year, in fact, since that uh, Clinton clip that you you all ran, um, they did pass a major multi year. Um, a surface transportation program. The acronym is the FAST Act. Uh, and it includes major uh, increases in funding for investment in surface transportation. Now, the problem is, and I think where Secretary Clinton's comments still hold water, is that um, there was a tremendous amount of what many term financial shenanigans to get that increase. In particular, we basically took $50 billion from Federal Reserve 
um, accounts, which typically are really off limits uh, from you know the other side of government, um, speaking of the Federal Reserve's independence, and drop that into what we call the highway trust fund. Uh, so similar to like New Jersey Transit, uh, New Jersey trust fund that's again going broke. Um, this is the the way that we firewall payments for surface transportation. Um, yeah, we found new money, but we really didn't step up to the plate for long term sustainable funding, whether it's in the form of gas tax, what we use right now, or or anything else. So the bills are moving. But we're still at a little bit of loggerheads on how can we decide that common ground for what sustainable funding sources there are going to be, whether they're purely public monies, uh, working with private capital that also really does want to get involved in infrastructure because of the good long run returns, um, and how we're going to shape all that relative to this, frankly, really wide swath of needs, whether we're talking driving costs, public transportation, aviation, broadband, water. I mean, there's a lot of categories here that have a lot of very clear physical capital investment needs, um, and there's only so much money to go around. And let's talk about water for a second, because the Bernie Sanders Club was uh, from a town hall that he held in Flint, Michigan. And obviously, Flint is in the news because of its water infrastructure and some, I guess, attempts at cost savings uh, that the state government there undertook, and we see the horrible results of that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm sure you're thinking the same thing. I mean, it's really, it's really sad. I mean, you know, just thinking about what those families are going through, it's, it's, it's kind of scary, right? And it really brings home just how important water is in our, in our daily lives, how much we really take it for granted being in a, in, a, in a developed nation to this level like the United States. It's an expectation that you're going to have clean water. Um, you know, just look what happened in New Jersey since, since Flint. Um, looking at the schools, over 10 school districts found, found lead, uh, higher than, than acceptable lead levels inside the schools. I mean, this isn't even in their homes. So this is really a national problem. Um, it's uh, symptomatic of, frankly, an older system where we need to really figure out how we're going to um, beef up investment. But one thing to keep in mind here, especially with regards to this presidential conversation we're having, is the federal role in water investment right now is very small. It's really states and localities. And in some places, like let's say Bayonne, New Jersey, where they are working with private sector capital too to get in the game, um, to make those investments. So it's it's a willingness of pay to pay at the local level, as well as in, let's say, the case of Michigan, where that's what's really sad in Flint is, is rates were extremely high, some of the highest water rates in the country. I mean, how could you combine bad water with expensive water? So in that case, it's going to take cases like the state of Michigan and in some targeted elements, uh, federal leadership too, to try to lower those rates and make make smart investments. Um, it's, you know, again, back to where I started, when, when the water is dirty, it really brings home just how vital it is. So I'm confident we're going to come up with a, a solution here, um, but it's really going to take all three major levels of government, again, state, local, and federal, uh, to work together to, to build it. So even though our minds first go to places like airports and railroad tunnels when people think of infrastructure casually, uh, do we learn from Flint that with infrastructure, as with so many other areas of policy, poor people are more vulnerable to doing things on the cheap, to doing things badly, to being shunted aside in terms of um, uh, uh, priorities and who gets the benefits of things. And we see that in the infrastructure area like we do in other things. Yeah. I mean, so much of infrastructure is is a willingness um, to pay or the resources to pay. So let me give you a few examples. Um, you know, many folks don't realize that transportation is now the number two household expense in the United States. Uh, rent, if you will, or, you know, your mortgage, that's number one, of course. But it actually costs more to get around than to buy food. 
um, to take care of oneself from a healthcare perspective. So it's really expensive. Um, and the vast majority of that's not on, let's say, gas taxes. It's actually on insurance and owning a car and, and it, just filling it up with regular gasoline. So, you know, driving itself um, is really a little bit uh, – there's a financial burden there, right? And many lower-income folks can't afford it. When you combine that with the fact that, you, again, New Jersey is actually in New York are quite lucky that m- most of their major urban markets have pretty good transit service. Um, in other parts of America, you know, transit does not a great job being able to both connect people to where they live to where economic opportunity is. So that's something where they can go for a more affordable option in transit, um, but it ends up costing them in time and the amount of places they can get to. One other quick example, too, is, is I want to stress on broadband, something that all uh, both Clinton and Sanders have talked a lot about. We have a 75 percent of households in America subscribe to broadband. So that means one out of four actually don't have a subscription. Those splits are really different, though, by high income and also, frankly, high educated um, uh, households versus the flip side, lower income, less educated. And that really speaks to how people are going to find access economic opportunity, especially in a digital economy moving forward. And so we have to think through on a policy angle, how do we make transportation more affordable? How do we get more people online? And really, that's not just going to be for those lower income households benefit. It's really the entire country has a great opportunity if we can do so. So when we look at this as a presidential election issue, infrastructure is an inequality issue, too. Here's Donald Trump last month on CNBC, a little inscrutable on the topic, at least in this clip. Tell me if you can decode this for us. I am an infrastructure person. I know about infrastructure. I know how to build. I know how to build quickly and on budget and all of that. We do have to rebuild our infrastructure. And one of the things we should be doing and thinking about doing is buying back debt, really buying back debt, doing a great job with it. But we have to fund in some way the infrastructure. Donald Trump on CNBC last month, Eddie Tomer, infrastructure analyst with um, the Brookings Institution with us. And there, dare I say, was Trump being Trump. He started out on sort of a serious topic, um, you know, endorsing the need to rebuild our infrastructure. But then he goes off and, oh, we're going to restructure our debt, um, you know, and then that had all the financial people going crazy because he was he was kind of saying, well, maybe, you know, U.S. Treasury bonds aren't with the full faith and credit of the United States government. Um, but what does he really – does he have a policy on infrastructure? It does not appear on the issues pages of his website. Yeah, I was being really nice earlier uh, by basically saying, yes, the – you know, and you obviously ran the crypt. Uh, you know, Donald Trump has, has said infrastructure constantly during this campaign, actually. I mean, one – if one wants to be especially liberal uh, with the definition of infrastructure, I mean, the the wall that he's proposing uh, with our southern neighbor could count as infrastructure. That's the um, infrastructure that you know, he obviously prioritizes. <laughs> yes, it seems like it. Um, you know, look, it's – I work with a ton of great political scientists here at the Brookings Institution. They'd probably be better to comment on how to decode Donald Trump. Um, it's a very difficult topic, and it's, it puts a lot of burden on the voters uh, all across the country to, to do that. Um, you know, how much we can know, how much he supports this, it's tough to say. I will say this, though, from especially the industry that he's come up in. There are typically, especially at the local level, when you see this happen, play out in real time, Typically, the real estate industry are some of the biggest supporters of more infrastructure investment. Um, You also see, frankly, the business community typified by the Chamber of Commerce here at the national level, but also in their state and local chapters. Um, Huge supporter of more investment in infrastructure. In fact, it's one of the only areas where the U.S. Chamber supports higher taxation, in this case through higher gas taxes, um, but also other forms of getting capital off the sidelines. So um, I really do believe that we can take 
um, Mr. Trump at his word uh, that he supports infrastructure and would like to see us build more of that. Um, but until we see more specifics, it's going to be really difficult to know what his agenda is there. And as I pointed out earlier, again, at the national level, Congress controls so much of this. So if the president isn't really clear, any president, on where they want to go, it really does leave um, all of the action uh, to their peers on Capitol Hill. You just told me I some, you just told me something I don't I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know, which is interesting. That the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is the business lobby, basically, um, and almost never wants higher taxation, does accept higher taxation in pursuit of infrastructure. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you should have the U.S. Chamber folks. They have great team over there here, at least here in D.C. that we know personally. Um, that supports us. Now, look, there's a lot of caveats, as, <laughs> as, your, as your comment kind of points out, right? If you're going to have higher taxes from that community, they want to really know what they're getting for it. Um, but I think the, way, the best way I can typify it is all across the country, um, you see this a little bit less in the, in the region where we're talking from today, but, but more so, especially out west and in the Mountain West, where ballot referenda, basically voters directly going to the polls to vote, do we want to hire typically sales tax to pay for infrastructure? Um, and that's the biggest trend across the country and where new infrastructure dollars are coming from, especially public. And it, it's building up massive new transit systems in places from Seattle to Denver uh, to Los Angeles and, and, of course, other markets even out east, like let's say Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, typically in those markets, you see the state and local chambers in support of those ballot referenda because um, basically they see it as a competitiveness issue. Right? You, know what that if, you know what that reminds me of? Uh, that moment in the 2012 campaign, and we talked about a little – this about a little talked a little about this on yesterday's show when Obama said to businesses, "You didn't build that," and Romney and so many business people took offense. He was talking about infrastructure. He meant you didn't build your business in a vacuum, um, and he referred to roads and bridges and other kinds of infrastructure as public works uh, that support the creation of business so that people should support government and the work of government and taxation in, in, in pursuit of the work of government. Um, so that was actually a, an issue that kind of got all, all mussed up in the 2012 campaign. But it was about that. Yeah, I think that was a huge component of the president's comments at the time. And that the way you, you just said, Brian, is perfect. Um, you know, we tend to use the word subsidy as a, a bad word, right, or a four-letter word. And in, in infrastructure and transportation in particular, you know, that's not what a subsidy is at all. It's basically us saying as a commons, right, we're going to pool our resources together to create this public good that we can all share and use. Now, um, you know, we have to figure out how to ration it and, and whether or not we should price it. That's part of the reason you see so much congestion markets is everyone can get on, let's say, the New Jersey Turnpike and drive with on around a reasonable price. Um, but in general, we're saying, look, this is a shared resource and it's something that we can all benefit from, whether a private business to, you know, a nonprofit to just private households. Um, it is that kind of shared component. And it is, it's, it's a great source of strength, uh, both in the American economy today, even though we need a lot more infrastructure, but certainly how we built up ourselves throughout the 20th century, too. It's a lot of shared investment that really was to a, to a great aggregate benefit. You know what? Somebody's calling in to defend Trump linking concern with infrastructure to debt restructuring in that clip. So let's take that call. Jake in Tribeca, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jake. Thanks. Yeah. Hi, uh, Brian. Um, well, I don't agree with Donald on most things. Uh, having been a Wall Street person for 13 years and know about interest rates, he is the only person 
who has touched on the subject of lowering interest rates, uh, of, of using the lowest interest rates we've had in a very, very long time, as close to zero as we can get, to restructure our debt. This is a brilliant thing. This would put us in a much stronger financial situation. Why, you know, the old story of buy low, sell high. Here you can buy the bonds at, at close to zero. And we've issued bonds over the decades when interest rates were high. This would help our economy tremendously. But isn't it different in government than in business, especially the federal government, because when a buyer buys a government bond, they're supposed to be 100% secure that they're going to get what they paid for in that government bond, which is supposed to be you know, very safe. I mean, I guess there are government junk bonds, too. But generally considered, you know, you get what you think you're paying for in that. So is there no risk to sort of the credibility of, of government bonds if he were to try to go in that direction? Uh, my understanding is that a percentage of bonds have different features to them so that some might have what they call early call features so that the issuer, meaning the U.S. government, mm -hmm. could call them back. I don't know what percentage those would be, mm -hmm. but I would think that a percentage are, and whatever that can be done should be done. Jake, thank you very much. I appreciate that a lot. Um, well, we're just about out of time, but I'm just going to let you put your top, let's say, three infrastructure priorities on the table, if you think you could do it that way, eighty. Because as I think we've established in this conversation, these days infrastructure means so many things. It's green, sustainable buildings. It's all the transportation infrastructure we think of first. It's wetlands to mitigate the effects of future storms. It's broadband. It's um, you know water pipes in Flint and everywhere else. So with it being so broad and with infrastructure being so expensive, which is such a big part of the conversation, what do you put first, second, and third? Oh, it's such a fun question. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> also difficult. But, you know, this isn't necessarily in order, but, you know, looking at kind of my cheat sheet here for stats and, and what really pops to me and, and things we're thinking about here at the, at the Brookings Institution, I, I'd say kind of one, two, three is first off is broadband, as I kind of pointed out. Mm. You know, one in four Americans are not online. I mean, think about how many of us use e-commerce every day or telecommute. Let's say down here in D.C. as we're having some pretty significant year-long metro construction. You're going to have the same in New York around the L train. So how can we make sure everyone's online, everyone has the digital skills to use um, uh, online features, basically the Internet, if you will? Um, that's going to be really big for our competitiveness globally, especially as we're kind of on that advanced end of the spectrum. And we've got uh, number thir two. 30 seconds left, so let's do two and yeah, three. Yeah, sure. Go so ahead. really number quick, two. Uh, make sure we clean up water across the country, including resiliency, not just clean drinking water and wastewater, and then really get smart about what kind of transportation we're building. So it, it's a, you know, it can't just be highways out to, out to nowhere anymore. I think we need to be smart about a multimodal uh, approach, including things like the Gateway Tunnel that, that really are going to have broad-based benefits. A.D. Tomer is a Brookings Institution fellow and a member of the Metropolitan Infrastructure Initiative. You can see his frequent posts on infrastructure issues at the brookings.edu website. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And that is issue eight in our 30 Issues election series, infrastructure as an issue in the New Jersey primary and the general election. Next week, it's issue nine, America's place in the world. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Stay with us.